0: Hey Magic Lantern listeners, this is a special episode this time so there is no opening scene like we would usually perform. Instead, we just wanted to say thanks right off the top for listening. We know that 2016 was an odd, stressful, and difficult year for a lot of us, but it was also for us the first full year of doing the show. And with that we've made some great new friends and got to have a lot of great conversations that we wouldn't have had otherwise and we really appreciate it. We also hope that likewise, we were a place where you could come and relax and forget your stresses and indulge your love of film for a little while. And we just wanted to say we wish everyone health and happiness and prosperity in 2017. And are you ready to go? I am. Okay, let's go.
1: Welcome to The Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing, informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long.
0: And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will usually be devoted to one film that we alternately select, but this is our special year-end wrap-up that we like to do. Episode 37, Ants in Your Pants of 2016. And before we get started, I just wanted to say... In the season's spirit, in the spirit of giving, it looks like I have passed my bronchial respiratory issues from last episode onto you, so you're welcome. Uh,
1: thank you. You may have thought that Abe Vigoda had joined us (laughs) for the episode. No, it's me. It's Erica. I just sound like an 80-year-old man with adenoids.
0: Well, Fish, tell us what Ants in Your Pants is all about.
1: Like last year... These are films that we saw for the first time and made the biggest impression on us. In addition to the Halloween wrap-up episode that we did back at the end of October, we were able to tackle a lot of titles that were on our must-see list, or we also stumbled upon a lot of choices that were not previously on our radar. These films are basically in the order in which we saw them this year. Now, I do have a bone to pick with you, even though I plan to cheat liberally throughout that episode. I do
0: not doubt that.
1: I do think that every year that we do this episode, we should be able to... All both of them. All both of them. I'm talking about future years. Okay. We should be able to include as many titles as the year itself. Therefore, I should have 16 choices. Oh, I
0: thought you meant 2016, which... I would have a
1: hard time narrowing it down. Is
0: that your honorable mentions list? I see your point, but that becomes so unwieldy, and then the show just gets longer and longer. You are a crazy person. (laughs) I
1: had the terrible task of whittling down this huge selection of wonderful things that I saw for the first time into a list of ten titles. For example, here's my first cheat. Even though this year was all about Jalo for me, I watched so much Jalo. I actually had to take out some of those options, for example, Blood and Black Lace and The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, in order to make room for things that rose to the top of the list. So Jalo isn't represented on my list at all.
0: Well, if you had to take those two off, this must be a really good list.
1: I think it's pretty darn good. Do you think yours is pretty darn good? I really
0: enjoyed reviewing this, actually. This episode is going to be a lot of fun. So, do you want to tell us what your first choice is?
1: The first choice is actually our shared choice.
0: We only have one this year. We
1: do. And we kicked off the year in an incredible way with Wim Wenders' Road Trilogy from 1974, 75, and 76. We have Alice in the Cities, Wrong Move, and Kings of the Road. The common denominator through all three films was Rudiger Vogler
0: in addition to cinematographer Robbie Mueller, who is also a longtime collaborator of Vendor's.
1: Great point. To tell you a bit about each of the films, we start with Alice in the Cities, which is the story of a German journalist who is saddled with a nine-year-old girl after encountering her mother at a New York airport. We transition into Wrong Move, which is about six days in the life of Wilhelm, a detached man without qualities. And finally, we wrap up the trilogy with Kings of the Road, about a traveling projection equipment mechanic who meets with a depressed young man whose marriage has just broken up, and the two decide to travel together.
0: Okay, which one of these was your favorite?
1: Far and away, Alice in the Cities. And that's hard to say because all three are tremendous, but anything with a kid, and America and finding heart and discovering your own empathy and exploring human relationships with someone who is so interesting to watch and you feel so much of their dilemma and hardship and journey. Alice in the Cities was amazing.
0: Me too. If I had to just pick one out of the three, which fortunately, since we're going to cheat and count this as one entry, definitely we don't. Alice in the Cities was also, far and away, my favorite. The thing I like so much about these movies, and Alice in particular, like you mentioned, is their scale, emotionally speaking. It's always modest, and Vendors is always that way, even in more ambitious films like Wings of Desire, for example, for me, boils down to that handshake between Peter Falk and Bruno Gans. And in this film, in much the same way, when Vogler is walking yellow Rotlander through the airport holding her hand, everything that is swirling around these characters and everything that's happening to them in kind of a whirlwind stretch boils down to that literal and metaphorical connection that they are making to me right there.
1: As I mentioned, to me it felt like it had the most heart, and I love exploring all of these Tangled and deep emotions that enter even into the most basic human relationships entered into relationships between strangers Which mm-hmm. is what that is. I'm also amazed at how them vendors can make me feel like I am watching a Community experience that means something to me even in a foreign country. I feel like I'm at home
0: There's something specific about the traveling aspect of it, that probably is what is engaging that part of your heart and mind, I guess. These moments of connection I'm talking about are very specifically forged in these conditions you only find yourself in when you're traveling, when you're in transition, which makes it especially appealing to me. We've talked a ton on here about how travel is important to me and how much with the band I've seen, the country, and the people that you encounter in those conditions. And it's very true, when you are on the road this way with a group of people either that you don't know at all or that you know really well, it spawns very specific circumstances and bonds are forged in those ways that don't occur any other way. And these films capture that perfectly. I liked Wrong Move the least on the initial viewing. I think because I perceived the lead character as a little spoiled and therefore it was harder for me to connect to him initially, but it has definitely risen in my estimation over the past year, and I find myself thinking about it often. Kings of the Road was much easier to get into, and I like it ultimately because it's a little lonelier than the other two, it feels like, which appeals to me a great deal, obviously.
1: I think you also appreciate the character that Rudiger Vogler plays in that, and you fantasize almost about that kind of life, specifically being a projectionist who travels around. Yeah,
0: it's fantastic. It appeals to you personally. Yeah, it hits me right in the heart. This trilogy is fantastic. Just released at the end of this year in great new Blu-ray transfers by Criterion, where you can collect them all in one place with a ton of neat extras, so I highly recommend seeing it.
1: And I'm so grateful that we got to see those restorations on the big screen. Incredibly beautiful. You mentioned Robbie Mueller.
0: Our beloved Austin Film Society comes through for us again. Okay, number two for me, one that I don't know that I could even convince you to see.
1: You haven't so far.
0: You've tried. Thundercrack from 1975, directed by Kurt McDowell. This is not for everyone. In fact... I think it's hardly for anyone.
1: (laughs) Yes, who would you describe the audience for this film?
0: If you find yourself sitting around thinking, I wish John Waters would stop fooling around and get weird, then maybe this is up your alley if you also like hardcore pornography.
1: And if everyone involved would cut their usual budget by 500%.
0: You could probably ratchet that number down a little bit. And when I say ratchet, I mean ratchet. The fact that it is not for everyone, or maybe even anyone, is why I think I love it the way I do. It was written by underground film legend George Kukar, one of the Kukar brothers, who also performs in it. And it is somewhere in that Venn diagram where Tennessee Williams, The Old Dark House, and Deep Throat overlap, which is a tiny, tiny spot, that this may be the only thing that occupies that area. Ever. Ever. I cite Deep Throat intentionally because it contains a number of hardcore sex scenes. Nothing is simulated. It is right there on screen, and it is greasy and unattractive a lot of the time. (laughs) (laughs) And it happens in pretty much every combination of men, women, and gorilla. Not an exaggeration that you can think of. The story is pretty basic. Not an uncommon way to start out one of these types of things. A group of travelers assembles in... A dilapidated home run by a dilapidated woman seeking shelter from a storm, but from there it spins wildly out of control. It is just so weirdly ambitious and truly unique for the kind of film that it is. You just have to marvel at how they came up with this and had the audacity to film it. The greatest sin I can think of when you look at all of the things that are my favorites or that I love is just to be bland. I would much rather have something be horribly offensive and terribly made, as long as it's not boring in the middle of the road and milk toast. That is a much more egregious fault to me, just to be average, than to be reaching for something that's outlandish, and maybe even fail miserably, because this, I wouldn't say succeeds on all counts. but. What is even the thing that they're aiming at?
1: Yeah, I was going to question, what are the goals that we're trying to meet? Who knows? If you don't really have any and it's to turn a camera on this lunacy, then I think that they succeeded.
0: Oh, they are genuine and sincere in their efforts to pursue this and capture this for posterity, which I'm glad they did. Be forewarned, listeners, that if you do go to the trouble to track this one down, your mileage may vary significantly, maybe more than any other thing I have ever talked about or recommended on the show, or will ever talk about. This may be the one that is the most divisive and completely alienating. So you've been warned before you go out and try to track this down.
1: It's also quite long, isn't it?
0: Oh, it's exceptionally long. (laughs) So it requires a great deal of patience And you have to be in a very specific mood. So good luck, people. Okay, what do you have next? I'm
1: taking us back to Ven Vendors for my number two choice, which is The American Friend from 1977. Adapted from a Patricia Highsmith novel about Tom Ripley, who we will actually cover in a bit as well from one of your choices. Mm -hmm. This is the film that came right after the Road Trilogy that we just discussed and it stars Dennis Hopper, Bruno Gans, and Lisa Kreutzer. I mentioned that it's an adaptation, and this story deals with Tom Ripley, who is dealing in forged art, and he suggests that a picture framer, who is played by Bruno Gans, would make a good hitman. This was also part of the Wemwender series that we saw at AFS, another beautiful restoration of this film. And the reason that I loved this so much is that for me, Dennis Hopper makes the ideal Tom Ripley.
0: Mm, I have a counterpoint to that soon. okay. Why does he make your ideal Tom Ripley?
1: Dennis Hopper is no one's idea of a pretty boy. Would you agree?
0: Mm, At this few. period in his life. Very few people. Very few people.
1: For me, he embodies what I think of as Tom Ripley. You take away those kind of annoying, upper class strivings, and you come away with someone who has to get by on personality and cunning, rather than looks. I was thinking a little bit about this comparison in the shower the other day. I was thinking back to our Smile Jenny, You're Dead episode. Now you have the actress who played Jenny, and then you have Jodie Foster, who played his young sidekick, sort of. Mm -hmm. She was around a little bit in the beginning in the middle.
0: A foil, let's say.
1: Now, who would you rather watch in their own story? Jodie Foster's Liberty or Jenny?
0: Probably, definitely Jodie Foster's character.
1: To me, if you go with what I was thinking of, Jenny lends nothing else to her own story. She's a player in her own life. She doesn't have these really interesting characteristics. You take Dennis Hopper as Tom Ripley, I want to see Dennis Hopper in all of these other settings. I want to follow Tom Ripley. He's a person that I'm interested in and want to know about, even as he is going more into the madder aspects of his life, by that I mean the crazier parts of his life, rather than someone like Matt Damon in that adaptation several years ago of The Talented Mr. Ripley, whom I couldn't have cared less about. I'm thinking also about something we touched upon in discussing the Road Trilogy, and then Vendors took the inspiration for the look of this film from the paintings of Edward Hopper. Is that why everything he does, even in a foreign country, somehow feels so American and familiar to me?
0: I don't know if that's particularly it, but it certainly doesn't hurt. Through that period, through a significant period of his career, Vendors was borderline obsessed with American culture, both on its own and how it was encroaching upon European culture. So to implement that Hopper aesthetic, which is personally one of my favorites, it definitely feels like home.
1: So I think you bring in an interesting plot. You've got interesting actors who bring something incredibly distinctive to each part, And you've got a director with a different idea of the essence of the characters, I think you've got an exceptional film. And that's why I chose this over Paris, Texas, which I also saw for the first time this year. Because I just don't think it gets talked about enough, or Mm. at all, possibly.
0: Certainly not in mainstream cinema circles.
1: So, check it out, I say.
0: Well, for my next choice, I will follow your Ripley with my Ripley, and I will make my case for why... This is the superior Ripley. My next choice is something that we showed at the monthly screening series that we host, one that you selected for us, and it is Purple Noon from 1960, directed by René Clement.
1: I think I win on both counts because I introduced you to this. You hadn't seen it before. I hadn't seen it yet,
0: and it is definitely a mark in your favor. Yeah. This is an adaptation of Patricia Highsmith's novel, The Talented Mr. Ripley, and it is Alain Delon's breakout performance. And you can see why.
1: Normally that would sound like a sigh. I think it just sounded like (laughs) I had heartburn. (laughs) But Alain Delon is impeccable.
0: He plays Tom Ripley in this. Murderer, identity thief, bon vivant. Ripley covets his friend's life and lifestyle, so he manipulates Philippe's girlfriend, Marge, kills Philippe, and slides literally into his shoes. He's my favorite, Ripley, and the definitive one, I think, because his physical beauty is crucial. With
1: physical beauty like that, you would follow him anywhere.
0: There's a lot more to it, even than that. Psychology, study after study, backs this up. At heart, Ripley is a coward. He's weak. He's a sycophant. He's a social climber. And you have to have charm... To succeed at being that type of criminal. Even charm is not enough, though, because Damon, to a lesser extent, and Hopper both have their own weird sort of energy that is charismatic in one way or another. But simply put, and the science backs me up on this, beautiful people get away with more things. Study after study shows that people naturally ascribe more positive personality traits to attractive people. They have more advantages in the workplace. On and on. The most beautiful Ripley, therefore, would be the Ripley that has an advantage on all the others. On top of that, Clement has put together an amazing looking film. The Mediterranean has never looked better. It's all sparkling in the sun and it is the deepest blue I have ever seen on a screen. So take that, Dennis Hopper.
1: I still think they're both wins. Oh, sure. I think at that period in Tom Ripley's life, Ellen Delon is the perfect Ripley. I think in the later, more sociopathic years, Dennis Hopper really captures that spirit.
0: You've seen Delon as an older man, though, right?
1: Oh, God, yes, I have.
0: It's not like he loses a step. (laughs) It's not like this beauty fades. It just matures.
1: But when the years are catching up to you in terms of your crimes, the law is catching up with you, those schemes become more degenerate almost. I think it cycles into Dennis Hopper.
0: There's never a shortage of dowagers to take advantage of. You just have to move the target a little bit.
1: I guess, yes, okay.
0: Agree to disagree. Okay.
1: (laughs) With my next choice, we are as far from the mediterranean as we possibly could be and that is titty cut follies Mm. from 1967 Mm. directed by frederick wiseman a genius a genius
0: a national treasure
1: absolutely we got to see a wiseman series i know that you're going to have a selection as well and we'll both speak to why our choices were so personal for us Titty Cup Follies portrays the existence of occupants of the Bridgewater State Hospital in Massachusetts. We see the inmates slash patients. We see the people who work there. We see the force feeding, the forced washing, the indifference, the bullying, the speeches, the titular show that they put together every year to celebrate what, I don't know.
0: The signature, thorough approach that Wiseman takes with all the subjects that he takes on.
1: Now, Bridgewater was a prison hospital for the criminally insane. Mm. It was a harrowing experience. It's a shorter film. Thank goodness it's not one of his three-hour epics. Right.
0: I think, actually, I turned to you the minute it was over and said, I don't know that I could have gone any farther.
1: I'm sure I was drenched in sweat. I know my knuckles were white. It's terrifying to a person like me whose biggest fear is winding up in an institution when you all realize that I'm actually crazy. (laughs) Some people, it's ending up homeless. Some of us, it's actually being locked away like that. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of a standard thing, I guess. I'm one of those people. A couple of interesting notes about this film. Frederick Wiseman and John Marshall, who shot the film with him, spent 29 days documenting the conditions inside Bridgewater, and they shot about 80,000 feet of film, which wound up being this 84-minute feature. That's
0: a lot of trimming.
1: This is the only American film banned from release for reasons other than obscenity or national security. After the film had been completed the state and the Supreme Judicial Court ruled that the film constituted an invasion of inmate privacy, and they ordered that it couldn't be seen by anyone, which was later changed slightly. Later, it was decided that only people in the profession and educators would be allowed to see this film, so it wasn't available to the public for a very long time. After it was seen by some audiences and after a legal battle, Wiseman was forced to put a postscript at the end of the film, And the best part of that is he put what he was legally obligated to write, which is, and I quote, a brief explanation shall be included in the film that changes and improvements have taken place at Massachusetts Correctional Institution Bridgewater since 1966. And the postscript that he included verbatim was changes and improvements have taken place at Massachusetts Correctional Institution Bridgewater since 1966, period which I think made a huge impression. I know it did on me.
0: Mm. It was a very final nail in the coffin, it felt like. It furthered the effect that Wiseman wanted and completely backfired on the people who forced him to implement that. Out of everything we saw this year, and maybe going back who knows how far, no film that I can recall in recent memory has tested my limits the way this one did. And that is not a condemnation. That is an absolute endorsement. But it is definitely a test of your constitution.
1: I think about this a lot in that we just viewed Hunger, the Steve McQueen film. Mm -hmm. When is it that we lose our humanity? Who gets inspired to be a guard in one of these places? And then who stays, as a lot of these people have? And the person who spoke the most to me, again, that secret fear I have, what's it like to be the man who was insisting that staying inside this institution was making him crazier and preventing him from getting better?
0: Making very valid arguments, coherent, relevant arguments, even though the mask would slip a little bit. He was obviously troubled. He obviously was at least slightly mentally ill, but the great majority of what he was saying, taken at face value, is a very reasonable argument, the most reasonable argument, ...that you could make in that given position.
1: And you have to view it all within the context of seeing what this actual facility was like.
0: It was a nightmare. Beyond description.
1: No one should live there. So as you mentioned getting boundaries tested, this is the one that definitely tested mine, and I can't recommend it enough.
0: Well, let's move from one end of the emotional spectrum to the other. My next choice is Cur Delilas. Is that right? Do you want to pronounce that for me? I
1: think that that was excellent. Or, excellent. <laughs> From
0: 1932, directed by Anatole Litvak, and this is on the list for me because some things will stay with you as a complete experience rather than just the content of the film itself. We saw this at the Cinémathèque Française on our trip to Paris in April, and it stars Jean Gabin and is the story of a murder investigation. A detective infiltrates the Parisian underworld and gets tangled up romantically with a girl that could lead him to the murderer.
1: Do you think that this was such a special experience because of where we got to see it?
0: Oh, definitely, yeah. All of that is part and parcel of why this is something I will never forget. The movie itself is good, but might not have made the list on its own merits. It made the list because of the circumstances in which we saw it, for sure. We were in Paris, in the Cinematheque, In the Jean Epstein Memorial Theater, watching a young Jean Gabin singing and swaggering his way through the seedy underbelly of Paris in his native language. In French, no subtitles, so you could grasp it, since you know the language. But I was just going based on the emotions and what I can make out of the roots of the language. And it didn't matter one whit. It was so much fun. We're in your favorite city in the world. We're doing what we enjoy most together, and I loved it, and surprisingly required very little to no translation to grasp almost all of it. It was a once in a lifetime experience, but I hope we get to go back. I had so much fun doing this. The Cinematech is one of the most beautiful places on earth, and that experience is one that I will treasure for the rest of our lives. That's the first appearance of Jean Gabin on our list.
1: Ooh la la. I
0: think there are going to be more.
1: Yes, definitely. But first, I've got a couple of lighter choices for us. Okay. The first is Scream of Fear from 1961.
0: I did not get to watch this one with
1: you. You fell asleep, I think. I said I was in a hammer mood and you found this one for me. It was directed by Seth Holt with Susan Strasberg, Ronald Lewis, Ann Todd, and Christopher Lee, written by the Hammer Studios stalwart, Jimmy Sangster. It's about a wheelchair-bound heiress who doubts her sanity when she sees her dead father's body just around the estate. This was great fun for me. I watched this on an afternoon. You were, I think, snoozing away. I was curled up on the couch, enjoying this on the projector, which was really fun, so I got to see it on a bigger screen. And it came out of nowhere. I was expecting nothing, and it was great fun. It's got genuine, interesting, multiple plot twists, some that defy some logic, but delivered with true emotional satisfaction and some great drama. Everyone in this is wonderful. I particularly enjoyed Anne Todd as the stepmother. She turns what could be a stereotype on its head right away. So as the audience, were are wondering, where is this going to go? It also does that wonderful trick of showing you something in the very beginning and making you forget about it. Mm. The best part is what I'm not going to reveal because I still want you to watch it. Okay. It's very dark and very nasty ending.
0: Okay. Sold. <laughs> well, speaking of dark and nasty, but in a different way, my next choice is Flaming Creatures from 1963 directed by Jack Smith. This is the first short film, that's on my list. This one I missed. Right. And this is also probably the most experimental choice on my list as well. It's another one of those that I read about for a long, long time. Anyone who's interested in avant-garde cinema has probably seen it, or at least heard the name, but somehow I had missed it all this time. It may be the least accessible thing on the list, Thundercrack included, because at least Thundercrack has a sort of narrative structure to it.
1: Plus a gorilla.
0: <laughs> but I definitely recommend that people see it. And if you do, keep something in mind. Jack Smith intended this to be funny. So, for all of my and everyone else's rhetoric about experimental cinema, transgressive this and that, blah, 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 he meant for you to have a good time while you were watching this. This is a party of a movie for him. It was made for about $300. And it is a kaleidoscope of sex and glamour and gutter exoticism like you've probably never seen. Don't go in thinking you are going to get anything by way of a traditional story arc. Just let the images take over and enjoy yourself. If you don't have much patience for experimental film, this probably is not going to be the thing that cracks the code for you. But if you are game for a crudely made jewel that functions as kind of a really interesting Psychosexual Rorschach test Then dive in Because it's a really good and interesting time
1: Where the heck was I?
0: I don't know You were not home that day I guess
1: That seems odd Because we're together 95% of the time That we're not working
0: Well it's on YouTube So you can find it that way So the next chance you get We should check it out
1: And for my next choice, I'm going to make a little bit of a pitch for it as well, because it's not the greatest film ever. It's not my favorite film ever, but it really caught me by surprise. It was Shadow on the Wall from 1950.
0: Another one I did not see.
1: Yes. It was a TCM lark for me. Sometimes I just want to put TCM on and check out different genres and give things a try. You know I like those more sort of short programmers as well. Mm -hmm. This didn't quite fall into that category. It's a little bit of an oddball.
0: So this middle section of the year, since we're going chronologically, were we just not hanging out together at all? I guess
1: not. Thank God that's over and you can give your cold to me all of the time. Anyway, (laughs) this one was directed by Patrick Jackson with Anne Southern, Zachary Scott, Gigi Perot, and Nancy Davis, or as we know her, Nancy Reagan. It's the story of a very young child who is left mute by the site of her stepmother's murder. Now, this one has stayed with me in an odd way. I actually would love to find a copy of it so that we have it.
0: This sounds very Cornell Woolrich already.
1: It does, and I do believe that you can find this on YouTube right now as well. But in the meantime, let me tell you a little bit more about why I liked it so much. I am not an Anne Southern fan. I've never followed her. I've never been a particular fan I haven't tracked down a lot of the titles that she's been in or really enjoyed her parts in things. So sorry to slag off Anne Southern for you Anne Southern fans. She's really playing against type in this. She's the actual bad guy, which we know pretty quickly, so I'm not giving away a lot of stuff. The best part is she straight up tries to murder kids, including (laughs) her niece, multiple times by poisoning And by drowning, it's nasty. These kids are little sick kids in a hospital for orphans. Wow. Yeah. And Nancy Davis, who has never been on my radar, who I consider to be pretty stilted, and she doesn't have a vivacious, vibrant presence to me, Mm -hmm. it plays in her favor in this because she's playing a doctor. Now, this is 1950, let me remind you again. And the thing I appreciated most is that her role is never discussed. It's never mentioned, oh, you're a woman doctor? What? That's never That never comes on the table. And she's never shoehorned into being a mother figure mm. as well. So it's really interesting. She's professional all the way. And the stakes are as high as they can get in this because the young girl who witnessed her stepmother's murder and becomes mute, she's blocking all of this psychologically. Her father doesn't realize that he didn't kill the stepmother and is about to be executed for it. So you put all of that together, and I think you've got a fun B or even C movie worth watching.
0: Well, my next choice is a genre exercise, too. My next choice is Symptoms from 1974, directed by José Ramón Raz. And it stars Angela Pleasance, and is, in my estimation, the jewel in the crown of Mondo Macabro's releases this year. Mondo Macabro, if you're not familiar with them, is a label that specializes in what they term the wild side of international cinema, a lot of exploitation-type titles, and they resurrected this that was thought long since gone. It had disappeared for decades and put together a great new presentation with this package that came out this year, and I thank them so much for it because it was a real highlight. It's about a woman who invites her friend for an idyllic weekend getaway in the country that then unravels fairly homicidally.
1: It's wonderful. It
0: is. It's a great genre piece. One of the best I've ever seen in the Women on the Verge subcategory. If you like Repulsion or Let's Scare Jessica to Death, for instance, this fits perfectly in with those and you will really like this one.
1: And if you want to watch Angela Pleasance do an amazing job.
0: Yeah, she's fantastic in it. Its atmospherics and tone might put you in the mind of a mystery in the early going, but it's not so much of a who done it in the traditional sense. It's more of a study of madness, and Angela Pleasance just nails it. She beams with this weird beauty when she's at rest that then gets ripped away in the more manic episodes. It's not Serenity, exactly, because you can see that her mirror is clearly cracked. Yeah, bless the folks at Mondo Macabro for this. It is definitely one you do not want to miss if you are a fan of that type of psychological thriller.
1: And now, back to Jean Gabin. Okay. With Moontide from 1942. This was the first entry in my series of hell's bells jean gabin is the shit if you didn't know that already and i did know that already and i was graphically shown that this year as well it was directed by archie mayo who replaced fritz long Mm -hmm. and it stars jean gabin as i mentioned Ida lupino thomas mitchell and claude rains we meet bobo played by jean gabin who fears that he has committed a murder when he was drunk Into his life walks Ida Lupino, who plays Anna, who tries to drown herself and is rescued by Bobo. And then we've got Thomas Mitchell, the beloved character actor, who wants to tear them apart for his own purposes. It falls into this category that's not noir, but has elements of noir, but is more about poetic realism. Mm. It's so foggy and doom laden and romantic. And claustrophobic and frightening. There's this sense of dread that permeates everything, down to the scene later on in the film when the yacht comes in, and I assume that something terrible is going to happen at that point. But it's wonderful to watch how each of the characters approaches their fate, and the ending is a killer, literally. <laughs> I think you can clearly see the handprints of Fritz Long in parts of it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, Jean Gabin's performance rises above the other wonderful actors in this. Ida Lupino has never been more charming and fragile and vulnerable. Thomas Mitchell, fascinating.
0: And Claude Rains. And Claude Rains. I loved him a whole lot. He's wonderful.
1: Then... He's the person that you want as your friend and yes. your companion who's striving for you. For me, it felt like real and interesting life. And... There are interesting threads to consider, one of which was Anna's reasoning for attempting suicide in the first place. There's a brief statement made, but it's really up to Ida Lupino and the setting to make you understand what is inside her heart and why you can empathize with her in that position. Not too much is told to us, which I really appreciate. And I remember at the end feeling suffused with love and light for you and for Jean Gabin <laughs> and for Ida Lupino. a huge highlight for me.
0: Well, I will see your attempted suicide and raise you a successful suicide with this next one. My next choice is Patriotism, directed, written by, and starring Yukio Mishima from 1966. I find Yukio Mishima to be one of the most fascinating people I know of. He was one of Japan's greatest literary figures, and his personal, artistic, and political lives were so intensely and inextricably intertwined. In late November 1970, he attempted to stage a coup, he himself personally, with the help of some of his compatriots, at the Tokyo headquarters of Japan's self defense forces. After its failure, he committed ritual suicide right there in the office it is speculated that this coup attempt was basically just an excuse for him to perform this spectacular suicide, which he had been planning for over a year, documented. This film, along with Flaming Creatures, is one of two shorts, and I don't think it should be any longer than the 27, 28 minutes that it is. It is perfect, just like it is. It portrays the final night in the life of a lieutenant, Who participated in the February twenty-sixth incident which was an actual coup attempt that took place in Japan in 1936. He's been given orders to execute his fellow mutineers and over the 30 minutes or so of this film we see he and his wife make love and prepare for and commit ritual suicide. It's the only film Mishima ever directed, which is truly a shame because I think he is just as gifted a filmmaker as he is a writer It's a stunning piece, very stylized, based on Japanese theater traditions. I had it in my collection for a long time, but for some reason had never gotten around to watching it. And I'm so sorry that I waited so long to see it, because I had been cheating myself out of one of the most stark, lovely, and moving performances I have ever seen in a film. It's almost hard to take, knowing how thin the membrane is between his fiction and his real life. I know I say that he prepared that suicide for well over a year, but this film coming in 1966, basically echoing that exact story, that was four years prior. So this was on his mind for a long, long time. We don't rank these, I know, but if I had to narrow this list from 10 to one, this is the one. This is my favorite discovery of the year.
1: Also very high up for me, simply based on Jean Gabin, is my next choice of Pepe Lamoco from 1937. Directed by Julien de Vivier. This is the second and final entry in the Hells Bells Jean Gabin is the shit category and he sings in this. (laughs) It's the story of a wanted gangster who is both king and prisoner of the Casbah and the tempting Parisian visiting who captures his heart. This is another entry in that poetic realism category. I believe this is also considered an early predecessor of film noir. Mm -hmm. It's certainly shot in that really fascinating way.
0: Duvivier is so underseen by American audiences. He had such a way with nooks and crannies and shadows that definitely presaged the noir era. I wish more people saw what Julian Duvivier does. And
1: we've got a great collection Mm -hmm. of his work, right? Mm -hmm. So this film is about wonderful dialogue. How Jean Gabin can set the world and all female hearts ablaze with a look. (laughs) He sings in it. It looks incredible. It's very suspenseful. The worst part, the quibble that I have, is the ending that feels very much in tune with the time in that he has to pay for his crimes. Ultimately, I was rooting for him the whole time. Right, (laughs) But it's lots of fun. And I think... It also inspires you to look at the inspirations specifically for The Third Man. So watch it again and play that game with yourself.
0: Does it help take a little bit of the sting out of it to at least know that in that world, snitches get stitches?
1: It does. (laughs) Everyone pays for their crimes in this. Everyone does.
0: Speaking of stitches, my next choice is Hospital, one of the Frederick Wiseman films that we saw at Austin Film Society this year. From 1970. We love Frederick Wiseman here at the Magic Lantern. I cannot say it enough. He is, along with Errol Morris, Werner Herzog, one of the true luminaries, the Maisels brothers of the documentary form. If you love documentaries and you don't know Frederick Wiseman yet, get to know him. Do
1: you want to reveal the super exciting news that you told me yesterday? I think my heart exploded.
0: Yes, he has made 45 films, including the one that's in post-production right now that will be released in 2017, which is about the New York Public Library, which is a dream come true for people like us. I cannot wait to spend three hours with Frederick Wiseman going through the New York Public Library system. It sounds like heaven on earth.
1: It does, me. because you have prevented me from including National Gallery in in, in Jackson Heights on previous lists because you won't make a show that <laughs> includes how they could be eligible for consideration. You are history's greatest monster.
0: Because we don't do a rundown of new releases, because we do older film discoveries, is that what you mean?
1: I think so. Well,
0: I do have this line that I sort of arbitrarily like to draw that... I only put films 25 years or older on this list because I don't think of films released in the last handful of years as a discovery so much as things that are much older.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get to hospital. Let's talk about this amazing documentary.
0: (laughs) Well, like we mentioned, there's no other filmmaker that gives you such a complete view of whatever organization or entity that he is focused on. Of the 45 films that I mentioned, he has covered everything from mental hospitals to high schools to welfare offices to the Paris Opera Ballet and everything you can imagine in between. He gives you such a complete picture of the subject that it's astounding. You really feel like you understand the organization or the institution. In this film, the titular hospital is Metropolitan Hospital in New York City in 1970, and it's a fascinating look at how a facility like this serves its community is the thing that I got out of it the most. With all of the requisite bureaucracy, the lack of resources, the frustration, the caregiving, every single aspect of it is addressed in a very short one hour and 24 minutes. Again, like Titty Cut Follies, I am amazed at these early films that are under an hour and a half at how much understanding we glean from them. He's a master editor as well, is what it comes down to, because he shoots and shoots and shoots thousands of feet of film, like you mentioned. And his editorial choices are so incisive that you get a complete picture of that thing. This film makes my list rather than Titicut Follies, which is probably, which is definitely, more impactful because of the scope and comprehensiveness of this one. You see more of not only the institution, but the society that it serves outside of its borders, outside of its walls. Titticut is more focused and more psychologically scarring, but hospital ultimately shows me more of the human condition, I feel like.
1: Do you feel like any part of that is because medical care is your personal hatred and the worst (laughs) thing I could ever do to you would be to take you to a hospital?
0: Doctors, hospitals, all that stuff, it's a big scam. Yeah. Anything, and I make this offer to anyone who's listening, whatever is wrong with you, Get an estimate, and my Swiss Army knife and I will do it for half. Standing offer.
1: That sounds fair.
0: Yeah. The upshot of that being, the most important part of this message, watch Frederick Wiseman.
1: Absolutely. But just for a moment, don't watch Frederick Wiseman. Watch Miss Grant Takes Richmond instead. Well, not instead. Maybe while you're out looking for a copy. From 1949, directed by Lloyd Bacon with William Holden, an actress not a lot of people have heard of called Lucille Ball.
0: <laughs>
1: James Gleason, my personal favorite. And Frank McHugh. It's about a secretary who goes to work for a bogus real estate firm thinking it's for real. But she doesn't know they're really bookies. Now, I am not a Lucille Ball fan. I'm going to slag off fan Southern. I'm going to kind of slag off Lucy <laughs> a little bit. I'm not particularly a fan of I Love Lucy. I've seen it many times. It's just not my thing. And the character that she portrayed is not really my person.
0: How can you not love Lucy?
1: I don't know exactly. She's
0: too zany. It's too...
1: Possibly a little bit. It's just into caricature at that point. And the episodes that I've seen that are a lot more calm and relaxed, I've really enjoyed. So I don't hate Lucy. I'm just not a fan.
0: The chocolate assembly line?
1: You know the the you're grapes a, and the stomping. You're a crazy person. I guess <laughs> it just doesn't really speak to me. So I was actually really surprised that I enjoyed this as much as gotcha. I do. And actually, the moment that I like the least in this is with the physical hijinks. There's Which this is, section, and that's your favorite. That's part.
0: the moment I liked the most about this. They finally, after having kept her somewhat under wraps, you get a glimmer of what I think is the real Lucy in the last 10 minutes, when it ramps up the comedy, rather than being a sort of general romantic comedy vibe for an hour and 20 minutes, it lets her off the leash a little bit. And you really get to see how skilled she is and how funny she is with physical comedy.
1: And what I liked the most is that before that, it's much more about the verbal comedy. Mm. So I really appreciated seeing that side of her. That's the sexier side that they tamped all the way down for the show because she started out playing va-va-va-voom ladies, and then you get to the show and it's as if she is neutered practically at that point. I mean, I'm exaggerating. But this is her at the height of her beauty, I think. And it's in the years before she was going to come into her biggest success. The same for William Holden as well. I like it because she works so hard and she's so dedicated to her community. It's got a little bit of an interesting story for the time of post-war America, the suburban parts of the U.S. and how a lot of people in small families are struggling to find housing and to make their own way in the world after this war period. I laughed a lot. I really wanted her to succeed. And I really enjoyed understanding what was at stake for these young families as well, whom she's representing. I also love James Gleason and anything (laughs) he's going to be in, I want to watch. So it's lighthearted entertainment, but it really took me by surprise. And I wanted to include it in this list.
0: My next choice ups the crime quotient from your bookies to Master Jewel Thief. My next choice is Black Lizard from 1968. Directed by Kinji Fukasaku and Yukio Mishima, there he is again. Did the screen adaptation of this, and also appears as a piece of human taxidermy.
1: Wow, you got to see the sort on of the big screen.
0: Yeah, right? I did. It was part of a great series that the Alamo Draft House did about super criminals this year, and it was a blast. Tommy Swinson, the programmer at the Alamo Draft House, he put together a great series of films that basically ran for months. It felt like, and every single one of them was a gem. The source novel for this is one of several about Detective Kogoro Akechi, Japan's Sherlock Holmes equivalent. And in this case, he's going up against the Black Lizard, a glamorous jewel thief who also collects people as human statuary. This already sounds like a genre gold mine, right? Yes. Add to that the fact that in this version, the Black Lizard, a female supervillain in the novel, is played by drag superstar Akihiro Mariyama, so the subtext and implications in their cat-and-mouse romance game is through the roof. Unbelievable how much twisted nuance it adds to everything. On top of that, Mishima, in his inimitable way, his adaptation focuses heavily on love and sex and beauty and death and all of their interconnectedness in that way that only he could do. It was such a daring take on the material that it could have really failed miserably, but it threads that needle just right. It is just enough complication, just enough camp, just enough decadence. I think it is genius and definitely one of a kind. It's hard to see in the West. There are only sub, sub, sub copies of VHS tapes floating around, it seems like. So one of these days, I hope one of these companies like Mondo Macabro finds this and restores it to the beauty that it deserves.
1: It sounds a lot like Irma Vep to me. Mm,
0: Those things are very definitely connected.
1: I can't wait to see it. Hopefully someday.
0: There's a version of it that came out in 1962 that plays it a little straighter. That is probably a little on the boring side. So don't confuse that with this one. Find the one from 1968.
1: Speaking of boring... <laughs> this is what I thought my next choice was going to be, and why I had studiously avoided it for years. Well, now I'm
0: super curious what this is going to be.
1: It was. Kiss me Kate. Oh, okay. From 1953. The show debuted in 1949.
0: Now how could you, loving musicals the way you do, how were you so convinced this was going to be a dud?
1: I really thought it was going to be square, Mm. I guess. Okay. You put it in the time period, images that I had seen. I think I just had this idea in my mind that with all of the work, the music and lyrics by Cole Porter, that it was going to be just more staid than I was interested in. Okay. Which is crazy because it explodes off of the screen. And actually, they had to tone it down for the movie version, so I would love to see the stage version of this. Interesting. It was directed by George Sidney. Music and lyrics by Cole Porter, as I mentioned, adapted from the book by Samuel and Bella Spivak. Of course, it's based on Taming of the Shrew. Mm -hmm. It's a backstage show. It's the the behind-the-scenes of a theatrical version of Taming of the Shrew that a divorced couple are putting on, played by Howard Keel and Katherine Grayson. It's also with Anne Miller, who does a wonderful job. This was essentially Cole Porter's response to Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma and other integrated musicals. Now, before that, it was very much more of a review kind of a show where you'll see people doing scenes and the numbers stand out. But they're not, as I mentioned, integrated into the story. Mm -hmm. This was the first show that he wrote where the music and lyrics were definitely connected to the script. This does what every musical should do, which is set me on fire, make me want to dance, make me sing, make me actually really like Katherine Grayson. I don't particularly enjoy those kind of high sopranos. Mm. When she gets down and dirty in her lower register to sing, I hate men, it's a great (laughs) moment. Also, a yowza for the costumes. Whoa. (laughs) Um, There's some... Bulges happening, <laughs> by the way.
0: Now you were telling me this was released in three D as well?
1: It was, yes.
0: So bulges on parade for sure. Whoa.
1: <laughs> when people jump on top of bits of stage and um on tables and thrust and bellow it's really happening (laughs) why did it take me so long to get to this i don't
0: know we have that conversation a lot about the films that end up on this list for us i think it may be just a matter of there's only so much time we watch so many movies personally a one a day for me practically i think this year i'm up to 330 maybe 340 right now
1: we're also sitting in our media room with one two three Seven shelves full of titles, plus stacks on the floor waiting for the new bookcase to
0: arrive. So it may just be a matter of so many hours in the day. But it's interesting that there are one or two of these. My next one also, that we intentionally tried to avoid for a while. So does that tell you... We shouldn't be putting up those barriers in the first place.
1: Absolutely. Take all comers, is what I say. And this crazy notion of why we're watching stuff apart, because that's nuts. We never do that. Why did we do that so many times this year?
0: Well, if we just open up the floodgates that way, things happen like I end up watching yoga hosers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Don't put me on that, because I certainly didn't watch that. (laughs) Which was...
0: And we don't do this very often, but since we're talking about our best of list, the worst thing I saw this year. Uh, yeah. But not to dwell on that. Okay. Well, the one I've waited and waited to see, the one I had put off intentionally because I just did not think it would resonate with me, my final choice for the show, and one that you might be kind of mad at me for, based on the discussion we had about you not getting to put contemporary films yeah, on the list. Yeah, all
1: these rules that you make, you're just about to break them.
0: Before Sunset from 2004, directed by Richard Linklater, is my final choice for this episode. I do definitely try to keep these lists to films that are at least a couple of decades old. This one is a special case, though, so maybe this will be a bomb. Nope. (laughs) It needs to go on the list for a number of reasons. One, the primary reason I chose it is because I would not have seen it without you. Yes. Yes. Since I'm constantly digging at the fringes of cinema for that next thrill, I know that you sometimes worry about being able to surprise me with things or introduce me to things that I have never seen. And this is proof that you should not worry about those things. Your contributions to my film education are extremely valuable to me, and this is the biggest example I can think of from this year. There are things that I will take your word for when I will not listen to anyone else. Two... I chose it because it was, to my mind, one of the great successes of the monthly screening series that we do. Every year in that series, in September, to celebrate your birthday, you put together an extended program. And this year, we showed the Before trilogy in its entirety throughout an afternoon and evening. And it was the best way to see it. It was a great way to see it. We got to watch it with an audience of our friends, taking one of them in, talking about it, resting a moment, and then moving on to the next one. And three, it's just a great film. It's the middle installment of the Before trilogy, for people who haven't seen it, like me, prior to this year, in which we look in on Celine and Jesse, played by Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke, every nine years or so to track how their relationship is progressing against a variety of beautiful European backdrops. Linklater is one of the most interesting guys working today, I feel like, and I love how concerned he is with ideas of time and the evolution of a character. I don't think very many directors are as interested in that idea as he genuinely is. I favor this film out of the three because the first and the third suffer occasionally from instances of characters living out relationship stereotypes, which completely turns me off. The example I'm thinking of in particular is the dinner scene where the group of people is collected around the table in before midnight, and there's a lot of this making jokes at my spouse's expense sort of thing that apparently is stuff that people do, clearly, because so many people relate to it, but I can't stand that stuff. It's so lazy and one note. So that, even if it is true for a lot of people, takes me out of it. This one, though, is a little tighter, a little more true, a little more resonant for me, and I think it's the one of the three where Julie Delpy gets to sink her teeth into it the most. So for a number of reasons, it was my favorite of the series. But the entire series is very worthwhile. And I think you definitely need to see it, experience it as a complete whole to understand how great they are individually, but to me especially, how great Before Sunset is.
1: I'll have a little bit to say about that later when we get to the questions portion of okay. the show.
0: Well, then what is your final choice for now?
1: Now, I had my entire list compiled, and then we went to see For All Mankind. And I had the terrible process of taking (laughs) one out to put this in because there's no way I could not have included it in this list. From 1989, directed by Al Reinert. Now, we had the distinct honor and pleasure of watching this with the director and with several members of the original flight operations crew from NASA, including a current flight director.
0: Yes, we had people who worked on all of the Apollo missions and someone who is currently associated with the International Space Station. So it provided so much interesting background and context that we would have otherwise missed out on.
1: Now, without that, I would have just been in awe of the film, Mm -hmm. regardless, It features the astronauts and NASA ground crews in their own words, documenting the Apollo missions. It represents various moments in all of the Apollo missions put together as one grand vision of what it was like to be there. It's essentially a discovery. Al Reinhart went to NASA and found over 6 million feet of film (laughs) that no one had ever done anything with. He put this together. He elected to focus on the human aspects of the space flights. what it was like, in his words, to send humans to another world. The score is by Brian Eno. I can't say enough about this. I can't say amazing enough. I can't say awe-inspiring. I can't say jaw-dropping. I can't say beautiful and heartbreaking and frightening and suspenseful and overjoyed enough times. I will mention again about the flight engineers and directors. I could have spent hours with them. I want to hear everything. Frederick Weissman, please go and talk to them somehow. I want to know everything about everything, every minutia of technology and process. My favorite part was thinking about how they... First, number one in Gemini and Mercury missions and into Apollo had no digital process of any kind or technology in use. They started with, what was it, 32K of RAM? It's
0: unbelievable. It's
1: unbelievable. And then one of the engineers holding up his iPhone 7 and talking about what can be done now.
0: Mm-hmm. They basically went to the moon with the power of a Commodore 64.
1: It's insane. It's extraordinary to look at and to listen to. And that ends my year.
0: Well, that was a pretty good year at the movies, then, if that's the case. Those are pretty fun lists when I glance back at them and see what we have, including some things on yours that I am very anxious to get to that I still haven't caught yet. Well, before we wrap things up, one of the other things that I want to do with this special year-end episode, we like to take... Questions from our listeners, our friends that listen to the show and interact with us regularly, contributed a fun group of questions for us this time. So I was going to ask you, from Matteo Boscarol, in addition to the discoveries we made this year, are there rediscoveries that you made? Films that you revisited or looked on in a new light this year?
1: Mine was the Before Trilogy that ended your list. As you mentioned... I showed it for my birthday month. And I had not gone back to the films separately since I originally saw them as they came out and as I was the age of the characters at the time. Mm. Number one, coming back to them was great fun. The best part of that was seeing them together, as you mentioned, and watching the journey as a whole at the age that I am now, which is 41. And going through this process with the characters, they stayed in my mind throughout those years. I wanted to see what I remembered correctly, what worked for me then, may not have worked for me now, and vice versa. And also having the opportunity to watch them as a married person as well. Mm -hmm. It was a great rediscovery. I still, though, really enjoyed seeing them at the time. You have no other context but to take them as they are. You don't have any foreknowledge. You don't have any hindsight. So you're taking the work as it stands. But of course now I can't say to anybody to go do that. So I agree, watching them as a collection is a great way to go. But I don't want to trade the experience I had of experiencing them as they came. And how about for you?
0: Well, I've got three relatively short takes for mine.
1: Are you taking a page out of my book <laughs> with answering a question with three three things?
0: I really would like to commend you for your restraint
1: this time Thank around. you.
0: So I am, yes, going to take a page out of your book and offer three choices instead of one. The first of those is George Washington Slept Here from 1942, directed by William Cayley, who made one of your favorite Christmas movies ever that we just had at our screening this month, The Man Who Came to Dinner. George Washington Slept Here features Jack Benny and Ann Sheridan, also in The Man Who Came to Dinner, and it's a comedy of errors about a couple who buys a farmhouse that looks like it's going to be a money pit. Jack Benny is top-notch Jack Benny in this thing, but Percy Kilbride, who most people probably know as Pa Kettle, is the secret weapon in this thing. He is so dryly funny and cuts through all of the hijinks with his simple, rustic, perfect delivery. He's fantastic in this. I saw it at the Paramount years ago, so I got to see it on the big screen, but we recently got a copy and it was great to watch it with you in this context and just have a genuinely fun time with a movie with you. My second one is Several Friends from 1969 by Charles Burnett. Another film that we showed at one of our screenings this year was Burnett's Killer of Sheep, one of my all-time favorite movies. and this short, feels like a test run for that. And I came back to it after we showed Killer of Sheep because it, along with a ton of other great extras, is included on the DVD release from Milestone Films, another one of our favorite companies. If Killer of Sheep is the mighty oak, then this is the acorn, and people should really dig into Charles Burnett's history and check it out. And finally, I'm gonna take one from you, for all mankind, since I'd seen it before, it wasn't a discovery for me but it's another one of those instances where the film-going experience adds so much. Context is everything. There's so many things that I love about the film, but seeing it with the people that were there for it. For instance, we were there with the guy who is individually responsible for making the decision that saved Apollo 13. If not for that guy who was a kid in his early 20s at the time, and his calm quick thinking we would have had astronauts drifting into the cold infinity of space forever and to hear him tell that story and to get all of this background it is just endlessly fascinating I'm with you I could have listened to those guys forever so once again thanks Austin Film Society for everything that you do because we would not have these sorts of experiences without them. Next, we have some questions from our friend Travis Trudell, who asks, how we met? Have we told this story?
1: I don't know if we have or not. It, pretty prosaically, we met online.
0: I put up a profile that said, must like Buster Keaton, Boston Terriers, and Butts.
1: And I said, uh, one out of three, <laughs> but enjoying the other two pretty well.
0: <laughs> and the rest is history. No, actually, that's it's true. We met via one of the larger online dating services that we don't necessarily need to plug because they're not giving us anything for that. But it was one of those things where, for me, I don't know how much the audience knows this or not, but I've been straight edge my entire life, and therefore meeting people in real life often comes with a high percentage of disappointment on my end or theirs when it becomes clear just how much this new person that I just met values alcohol in their life. And therefore we are likely going to be incompatible. So having a forum where I can put this right up front and say, this is who I am. It initially weeds out all of those people that care that much about it. Fortunately, that was not a hindrance to you. You saw my profile photo peering through the digital darkness at you and decided to send me a note.
1: And the way you phrase that, it makes it sound like we're going to be in black robe or something or play in the fields (laughs) of the Lord. But it was a great time. I read every single word and I knew I found the person who was speaking directly to me.
0: It was a little verbose, but that also weeds out the dummies.
1: Exactly. That's (laughs) That's why mine was pretty verbose as well. I think about a tenth of yours, but... For everyone else who responded to me was a lot because I waded through a lot of two sentences and hey, what's up? Yeah. Stuff. It was a whole lot of that. And as much as I like butts, I sometimes don't like the things that come with (laughs) other people who like butts.
0: A romance for the ages.
1: Exactly. And I walked into your apartment for the first time and knew I found the right person.
0: He also asks, Travis does. What is the first film that we completely disagreed on?
1: I read that question, and that's the one I've been struggling with, because nothing really comes to mind. The only thing that even hinted in the back of my memory was a Richard Rush movie we saw a while ago with Elliot Gould and Candace Bergen that I we definitely had some kind of an argument about on the way home. We were really differing about a view of the characters, but... Disagreement? Not really.
0: I think we did the same thing after seeing that Live and Ingmar documentary, too. That's true. That one, and I cannot for the life of me remember why now, so it must not have been I, that crucial, Yeah. seemed pretty divisive for us at the time.
1: I would say for the most part, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, we allow each other to go our own way. You don't force me, in the words of John Hodgman, to like what I don't like. Right. You don't try to make me watch something we don't really approach things that way. So I'm either going to be on board or I'm going to say, nah, I think I'll watch something else.
0: No, there are a handful of films that are linchpin experiences for people that are not for me, that if we were to sit down and discuss them, that I think we're probably farther apart on, particularly things like Star Wars, Ghostbusters, the original Ghostbusters. For me, they are not critical, crucial parts of, my childhood. I saw them like everybody did. I liked some of them at the time, but, and I can't believe we've not talked about this on the show before. I have this theory, my green eggs and ham theory. Green eggs and ham. We all read it. We all loved it when we were three, four, five years old. I'm not sure how old you would be when you're first experiencing Dr. Seuss. But the point is, now that you're 20, 30, 40, you're not still reading it every day. You're allowed to leave things behind that are no longer stimulating, that you've outgrown. Because at its heart, Star Wars is a kid's movie.
1: I will say, we both know people, separately and together, who I think are genuinely still stimulated by Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Now, whether that's grounded in continuing those things that stimulated them, then I think there are people who have a genuine love from that, but if that's the only thing that you could speak to, I would question that.
0: Yeah. You're allowed as a grown up to assess the piece of art now as a grown up would. You do not have to look at it the same way you did when you were seven. So I think there are a handful of those things that I do not carry on with me that you probably enjoy at least a little bit more than I do. Yes. That might be the things that we differ on the most. But again, nothing we've ever disagreed on because I can look at the Star Wars franchise, for instance, just to keep using that as an example and say that original trilogy, so-so movie, good movie, bad movie. And I think objectively anyone could look at that and see the same thing.
1: I also think that we recognize each other as kindred spirits so if I, in the early days, saw you not laugh at Sullivan's Travels, I would have walked out the door because you're a (laughs) moron. (laughs) So, we knew that we had something in common right. going in. And I will, just to clarify an earlier statement about walking into your apartment and knowing I was in the right place. I don't mean to suggest that it was some sort of fancy sex layer. It was the, <laughs> at that time, five DVD cases full of films.
0: You got to see the sex lair part later.
1: Later on.
0: was That day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Good one. And the first thing we watched together was Mitchell... And Sullivan's Travels, followed by Basket Case and Ripping Yarn. So it was a done deal.
0: Lastly, he asks, and this is probably more your purview than mine, is this what it sounds like when doves cry? Um, Which is an apt question for 2016.
1: Oh, don't remind me. We lost the greatest. We lost the greatest. We lost multiple greatests. That's true. Anyway, yeah.
0: So, yes, 2016 is the sound of what it sounds like when doves cry, but we won't dwell on that.
1: Yeah, good. Okay, let's move on.
0: So, the next question we have is from our friend Jane Sankner, who asks, if we could choose any film or director to get the criterion treatment, who would we choose?
1: My first inclination was for Frederick Wiseman, who Hmm. we have talked about multiple times in this episode. But I do really appreciate and support that he does everything himself, including releasing these titles. So I don't want to take that away from him. I do want to see 15 extra hours of footage and profiles and behind the scenes. That's fine. But so if I take Frederick Wiseman out of it, my next choice would be Woody Allen. I want to know more about the process and I want to see Amazing Restorations and I want to follow the entire trajectory of the career in a way that I don't think we've been able to now. Now, having said that, do you think that because of the filmmaker that he is that I might not be satisfied in the process part?
0: I think that may be true. I think there are a lot of things that make his films successful, the casting of them, for instance, that he does not participate in. And I think he is very much about that's done on to the next one. He and a filmmaker like David Lynch, for instance, are not really big on explaining, going back and doing commentary. They put the work out, the work stands on its own, make of it what you will. I don't have a lot to add after the fact, I'm making the next thing instead. So they could cobble together sources from a lot of other places, but I don't think that insight would be coming from Woody Allen himself. I will
1: listen to Tony Roberts talk about whatever. (laughs) That's That's fine, too.
0: Well, I approached it, again, your way, and I have one choice for each option. All right. For an individual film, I want more than anything a quality print with lots of extras of Betrayal from 1983, directed by David Jones. It's one of my all-time favorite movies, and it's only ever existed on VHS, which is criminal. It's from the Harold Pinter play... It stars Ben Kingsley, Patricia Hodge, and Jeremy Irons. No slouches. No. And it follows an extramarital affair in reverse chronological order. I love it. I saw it first when I was 14, I think, and it seemed so adult at the time.
1: I think you're right. It is.
0: And I have never forgotten it. I may have even, in my early 20s, written a cycle of poems about it.
1: Oh, Not revealed to me in your online dating profile, (laughs) but would have also sealed the deal.
0: And as far as a director, I would love to have a collection, a really nice box set of the films of Apichapong Weiracetakul, the Thai filmmaker. In particular, I would like to see Tropical Malady, Syndrome's in a Century, and Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives. His movies are so on my wavelength. I don't know that everyone would enjoy them the same way, but if I could pick one person whose work to collect and have a really extravagant set of, that would be the guy. Finally, Eric Parkinson asks, which episodes did we have the most fun making or are we the most proud of?
1: I'm a little bit embarrassed to reveal that I forget everything that we've done (laughs) the second we walk out of this room. You're the Woody Allen of the pair. I guess. That makes me think, sorry, I have to share my favorite Simpsons line when Ned said, I like going to his movies, but they always feature that nervous fella. (laughs) Anyway. um, So I forget everything, and I tend to forget previous films that we've done, um, wide swaths of time, but a couple of things do really stand out. I had great, great fun doing Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm. That was a big highlight for me, and that was a lot of... uh, I I enjoy it when we have some laughs and we do some jokes. And I enjoy it when I'm the one uh, doing them and people tell me about it later. (laughs) So that was a big highlight. We had a lot of fun doing Payday, Mm -hmm, right, too, which is not a big yuck fest of a film, but we really enjoyed just the process of sitting here talking about it. I also really like doing No Country. That was a lot of things that we hadn't talked about before that were revealed in the episode and a lot of interesting discussion that I heard from you, I think. Yeah.
0: Well, the episodes that are both at once for me, that, that I both enjoy and am the most proud of are the ones that we've done with guests with Brian and Sela from pathway comics and with Lars from Austin film society, because it's an opportunity to support our friends who are doing things, creating things That we are proud of and spread the word about their projects. And plus they're great entertaining people. So that sort of covers both bases. But just in terms of having fun, I think Top Hat was the most fun for me recently. Just because I like to see you having a good time so much. Great. I really enjoy that. And so it makes me have a better time and I think makes for a better show.
1: Well, you mentioned our guest episodes, and those felt like they took five minutes to make. Mm-hmm. And that's Cloak and Dagger and Smile, Jenny, You're Dead. I did control myself from singing in this episode. So far. I watched Gypsy and recently, and <laughs> it's just been in my mind. And I've been singing to the dog all the time. Yeah, I'm not going to do it. No, don't ask me. No, <laughs> yeah. I haven't warmed up, and my voice is not at its best.
0: Instead of that, let me sneak one more in here.
1: Geez, another one? Mike, You're just all over the place. with You're making a mockery no, no, no. of the rules of God's life.
0: Not a recommendation or oh, an okay. answer, but another question. Okay. The last thing was Jane also asked, when are you going to start your Murder, She Wrote podcast?
1: Jane, I think that is the greatest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> I actually was working on an outline for it today. Should I even say that? Because we might not ever do it, but I genuinely love Murder, She Wrote. As do many, many people.
0: Jane has no idea what she's done.
1: It, yeah, you really opened a box with that one. We started watching the episodes. You had never seen any episodes. Not an entire one. I watched them as they debuted at the time. Love me some Angela Lansbury. So, let's see. Let's let's do it. Let's put on a show.
0: 2017 might be the year we expand our podcast empire.
1: I also came up with the title for it, too. So, But I'm not going to say. Just in case. Just in case it's no good. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, well, I can
1: also do a golden girls podcast too, <laughs> please, please someone asked me to do it.
0: We will leave that right there, okay, and we will wrap up episode thirty seven If you would like to get in touch with us, you could reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail dot com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for our name in either one of those places. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I would like to thank the folks who have given us feedback or shared our show since the last time. Drew Tavendale and the fine gentleman at FUDS on Film, Brian Sauer, Mike Scharf, and Jeff Duncanson. And I would like to say an extra special thank you to Eric Parkinson, who also contributed one of our questions, for leaving us a very nice review on iTunes. If you would like to do that for us, we would certainly appreciate it. Eric does a really fantastic podcast called This Must Be The Place that I highly recommend. He's just started it so you can get in on the ground floor of it. And the closest thing I could compare it to would be if you like 99% Invisible, but it's about geography and a sense of place rather than objects and design, you would really like Eric's show. I highly recommend checking it out. In addition to iTunes, you can find us on Google Play or Stitcher Radio. Basically, on any podcatcher that you use, you can generally track us down. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. I would like to mention here at the end of the year also, we don't harp on it a lot, but we have a donate button on the website. So if you're feeling generous in the spirit of the season and would like to contribute to the ongoing upkeep of the show... We would certainly appreciate that, too.
1: And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.